probably more than uh, what we might say more typical or conventional <clears throat> approaches to practice and conceptions of the path and um, ways forward. Um, more, more than the usual ways we might be familiar with, I, I think we feel that this, this kind of way of working and, and what we're opening up here and the practices that we're involved in and what unfolds from that, um, how would you say, unfolds more individually. There's certainly general principles, we, and we, we draw attention to these, but there's something quite individual about what arises, uh, what kinds of things arise, what order um, things unfold in, and also uh, differences in people's propensities, um, what they've done, what their natural tendencies are in this or that direction, so that sometimes um, you know, someone needs to spend time developing this before this is available, or another person it's the other way around, or another person can move quickly through something that takes longer for someone else. And, and all of this is just in the nature, I think, of the material that we're covering. So that, again, in, in putting out these teachings, we're aware that it's a lot, and um, some of it, definitely for everyone, some of it will just be later. I don't quite understand, or sounds good, I get it, but not right now. Um, and some will feel very pertinent, and some will be stuff like, I know that, you know. Um, so there's quite a discernment, I think, in... Uh, and we could talk a lot about just discerning what to pick up, what to stay with, um, and what to just leave. You know, it's, it's being recorded, etc. So we're putting a lot out, and just to um, have that big picture sense with that. Um, and let's say a few things uh, in 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 that spirit. You know. Um, So one thing I mentioned, um, we're not so much uh, emphasizing or having the direction, the priority in, in this retreat and in, um, of so much of focusing or um, concentration, so-called, as, as a goal. It's not so much what uh, this retreat is about and this, this way of unfolding is about. Rather, I would say openness is or different kinds of openness is more what we'd like to um, emphasize and encourage and support. So openness of mind, openness of view, openness of perception, um, openness of heart as well, openness of heart. So uh, just to say a little bit about this. In this tradition, in our tradition, most of us are used to practicing with the eyes closed. And there's an inward uh, gaze, and this can be really, really helpful. It's a little early on the treat, maybe, but what about actually, if you feel inclined, experimenting with eyes open or eyes closed? In other words, there's no hierarchy here, and you and in as as with everything else, we can experiment and find out actually what's helpful when. So you can start a sitting with the eyes open, and then maybe it closed at a certain point, or maybe they're closed and they open again. Um, Careful if that movement isn't a movement of restlessness, just like something needs to change because I'm a bit bored or fidgety or something. 
Um, but really this question of like sensitive discernment, what actually helps? What helps? So experimentation. When the eyes are open, we can still, I mean, many people will still be able to see um, purely intrapsychic images, if we use that language, intrapsychic, as if the psyche is something separate. Um, so even though the eyes are open, I can still be sensitive to and in touch with an, an internal image, but the eyes are open. Uh, and when the eyes are open, too, there is the chance to perceive the world differently, perceive others and what's around me in some kind of uh, what we're calling cosmopoesis. Um, the eyes open may lend themselves more easily to that, and that's part of what we're wanting to explore. So you might start a sitting with the eyes open, actually notice that already there's something different in the way that I'm sensing what's around me, and then maybe dwell with that with the eyes open. Maybe then see, oh, can I, can I actually have that with the eyes closed? The same sensibility, not necessarily directly visual. Um, for instance, but similarly with the eyes closed, we can still, as I said, have a sense of the, the, uh, a different sense of the world around us. There can still be a cosmopoesis with the eyes closed, comes through the other senses or the inner visual sense, etc. And wrapped up in this, again, is this, is this kind of experimenter's question, why does it, what makes this work or not work? if the eyes are open or eyes are closed. What makes it work sometimes and feel fruitful and other times not? To me, these are really important questions to, for a practitioner to begin to ask these kind of questions, as, as, especially once you've done a bit of practice, you know, and it's like you want to be your own, you want to be the person finding out and researching and, you know, uh, discovering. Um, pra- what happens is not just random. We're not just receiving stuff out of nowhere. Think things work or, or don't work or unfold in certain directions for reasons that we can actually begin to understand and explore and play with. But in relation to whether, for instance, the eyes are open or closed and whether that feels helpful or not, one of the things that makes a big difference is the relationship with what I'm seeing. Now that goes, whether it's an internal image or hearing or seeing is a broad, broad word for what I'm perceiving but it's the relationship with the object. So if I'm reifying what I see and clinging to it as some kind of reality, or if I'm grasping in a gross way, I want that, or I really need to get rid of that. And this could be anything, something in the body, something, it could be a self-view, it could be a, a person. The reifying and the grasping will affect hugely what, what, what is available. Uh, if another factor would be if I lose contact with my, my body space, the space of the energy, and I'm, I'm leaning out there, and I lose touch and sensitivity here. So all those three things, um, even if that's subtle, you know, that kind of leaning and grasping, um, what, what will happen? The imaginal realm will fade. Um, and the cosmopoesis will fade, it will, some, something will dissolve of its uh, potential and power. But, but we can be, you know, experiment with being more open with the senses, if it feels okay, and see what happens. And there's a lot of people in the hall, and sometimes we're used to, you know, um, 
just everyone shut up so I can do my meditation and my concentration can get better. Um, and it, this, you know, can be quite common to hear uh, noises um, from other people as disturbances and distractions from my project of meditation, etc. Uh, what's happened there? There is a pushing out, a, a trying to close in, and a pushing out of the of the sensorium of the re, of the sense realms, um, versus an inclusion, actually opening to include more. But more than that, there's a view. I'm viewing this person in a subtle way as a nuisance. Why don't they settle down? Why, you know, etc. Why can't they be quieter? Part of what we're interested in is playing with view. So here's this human being who strikes me as clumsy and insensitive and too noisy and etc. Perhaps even just subtly, can I play with the view? Here is an angel. Here is an angel. The sounds I am hearing are the sounds of an angel. I'm, I'm shifting the view deliberately. I don't just mean angel as a metaphor. Oh, they're so sweet. Uh, I, I mean it in. M- more than a metaphor, without a reification, somewhere in between what has come, what that word metaphor has come to mean, a euphemism or whatever, for just they're a sweet, nice person, really. Somewhere in between that and this kind of solidification of the word angel. And, and this shift of view is not the same as like, oh I'm, oh, I'm so judgmental, I should think this, or I should be able to see that. We're really talking about the realm of experimentation here, playing with views, this agility or flexibility with view. There's something you can try and, and see, and see what happens. And uh, this this is the kind of thing that we're, we're really emphasizing. And in the practice today, then, we're a li- little bit more flexibility between practices, like we talked about, um, uh, we mentioned as a possibility yesterday. So, energy body very much, and um, as Catherine was talking about, you know, there's different, if we like, uh, frequencies of, of the experience of body. So we can, you know, the solidity, the, the earthiness, the soil um, as an important frequency. And then sometimes it's more, much lighter and more sort of ethereal than that. And <coughs> all the spectrum is available. And it's all, ultimately where we're going with this, it's all divine. It all becomes divine. But the energy body is connected with whether we're working with emotions, whether we're working with images, whether our direction is more in, in, in the way of samadhi. Um, but today you can start to allow more of the imaginal in, if you, if you feel like. And that could be very spontaneously what arises in image. Or it could be more deliberate, like following on from, for instance, following on from Catherine's meditation yesterday with the imaginal figure of love or um, something that already works for you as an image and you, you draw it back deliberately. But there can be a flexibility between these practices, the emotional awareness, the samadhi, and the imaginal, these, these uh, directions, intentional directions. And always the sensitivity to the body and the sense of what's, what's helpful, what's soul-making is, is uh, you know, a central aspect, integral aspect. Let me say a little bit more about this, and particularly in relation to imaginal practice. Um, a while, a few months ago, I think it is now, Catherine told me she was having a conversation with a friend of hers who's a Jungian, um, 
Jungian psychoanalyst. And he was talking about their, what they call active imagination in that tradition. So it's similar to, sim, there's quite a lot of similarity between that and what we're doing, not, not completely. And he said to her, if I remember rightly, something like, it's just a grace when, when that door opens, when, when uh, you enter interactive imagination. There's nothing you can do to, um, to uh, bring that on. We're, we're, you know, it just comes. Um, I, I, I would say not necessarily at all. I mean, yes, it can come spontaneously, but there's, you know, this question, what is it that feeds? What is it that nourishes? What is it that opens certain doors? And what is it that closes certain doors? So in the way that we're um, presenting the imaginal, we can deliberately practice um, uh, opening to the imaginal, um, opening that door, crossing the threshold, if you like, into the imaginal realm. Um, we can um, deliberately practice cosmopoesis, etc. Um, and we're interested in, in um, what, what, su- what supports that. So we're including both spontaneous and deliberate. And what is it that allows us to enter the territory of soul-making? What is it that helps shift the mode of being, the ways of looking, so that that opens up? So I would say, in part of that, four four factors or aspects that are um, actually interrelated and, and kind of mutually dependent. And the first is, um, if this sounds a little technical right now, it will, it will make more sense as practice goes on, and some of it will, will definitely uh, make sense um, right now. But, um, the first is a, a lessening of fabrication. The fabrication of perception is less um, in the moment. In the moment, uh, in the moments when there is less... Um, creation of solidity and separateness and thingness to the things of perception, um, that's an important contributing factor to opening the door of the imaginal. And so that's one factor. Now, how do we fabricate less? That's a whole thing, you know. Um, But basically, in a nutshell, it's when there's less clinging. When there's less clinging and craving, rejection, aversion, etc., there is less fabrication of self and perception. So all this practice has to do with, um, or rather, is, is a, an integral part of it is, is the lessening of clinging, because that lessens fabrication, that loosens things. And, and we're, we're in the realm of, of the loose and the, uh, the, uh, the alchemical solution. Okay, so that's the first one, lessening of fabrication. The second is what I want to, for want of a better word right now, call synesthesia. And some of you will know this word. It's when people, for instance, their senses get mixed. So it's a, psychologists make it a clinically sort of pathological condition. But, but I'm just talking about a mixing of the senses. And sometimes it feels like I see sounds or I um, feel colors in the body or, or this kind of thing. Um, as fabrication gets less in practice, six senses tend towards one sense. Some, some of you will be familiar with this. As, as the mind calms and gets deeper, what feel like six separate senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind, um, actually seem to kind of coalesce to everything is kind of one sense. 
It's all being received, um, in, if you like, in the same sense field. Uh, there's a, but there's a continuum there to how separate the senses field or feel or how, how they join together. Um, and this happens as fabrication gets less anyway. As we let go of more clinging, the senses tend to go more towards oneness. And eventually we go beyond the senses. There's a, a dissolution, a non-appearance of all sensory perception. But, that's, but there's, basically there's a spectrum there. And part of um, the opening of the imaginal realm is actually... Not always, but sometimes this, this mixing of the senses. The senses, there's more fluidity or, or blending of, of the senses that's quite characteristic. So that's the second. So lessening fabrication, this kind of synesthesia. The third has to do with the heart and the, the stance or the position or the posture of the heart. Uh, receptivity surrender, humility, um, seem to me to actually be really uh, um, really important aspects, really necessary aspects. Uh, the heart, that's really important for the heart to open this door of the imaginal realm. And what, what is, right now, what is the posture, the attitude of the heart? And that makes a big difference. I'm going to come back to this in a sec. Um, and the fourth factor is, or aspect, is, is the, the, well, the imaginal itself and the way we're tuning and, re- and relating to the imaginal. So these are all interdependent, but of those four, the first and the third are things we can actually do. So we can actually learn with, with practice, with skill, to, to cling less so that there's less fabrication and the whole realm of percep- perception gets less solid um, more amorphous, more um, insubstantial, if you like. Um, we learn to do that, and we learn to do it more easily um, as practice uh, goes on. And, and also the opening of the heart, that, that this moving into uh, an attitude of heart that is um, receptive and, and, and has humility into it. Sometimes it feels like, God, that's such a stretch. I don't know, I just locked into this, this tightness of heart. But as practice goes on, we get better at just, just shifting to an attitude of humility. It's something that comes and becomes uh, more easy with practice. And those movements, the, the things that we can do, the lessening of the fabrication, this receptivity or humility of the heart, they're things we can actually do, and they allow the opening of the imaginal um, in ways that affect the soul more deeply, that actually really go, go deep, um, and that are more soul-making, and they allow the, a degree of synesthesia, of this kind of mixing. And as Catherine was saying, I think it was this morning, that this, it's like, different ways of knowing. So we tend to only know through the mind or thinking or information or through I see it or I hear it or I... But actually other modes of knowing that, that don't really fit so well into the usual way we think of how the senses work. Other modes of knowing become available through all this. And that's part of the cosmopoesis, that's part of the re-enchantment of both what the human being is and what the world is. So, um, for example, to just illustrate all this, you know, in relation to my uh, my illness right now, and then say over the last year, 
and uh, and the possibility of dying and all that. And uh, you know, sometimes if I'm practicing and I'm using the imaginal in relation to that, and I want to experiment a little bit. Um, what seems important to unlock something, or, to, or not to unlock so much as to bring it alive, but maybe both, unlock and bring it alive, is, is the first thing is this humility. I cannot cure myself. It's not in my power. Maybe the doctors can't. I don't know. But knowing that, is, or just that recognition, is there's a humility. It's not in my power. I cannot do this on my own. It may or may not happen. From that humility, then a, a, another, if you like, step, maybe it's a short step, maybe, is from that humility, an openness and a surrender to something bigger than me. Let's call it God. Um, and put that, if you like, in inverted commas, to a God. Whatever uh, language we want to use, something that is numinous, something other, larger, larger than me. And this stance, this posture of the heart, needs to happen first before any other... It opens the door um, to to the imaginal. Um, Or rather, as I said, it's what allows the imaginal to then come alive. So then this figure of divinity comes alive because the humility and and the openness and the surrender of the heart allow it to come alive. And without that, it does not come alive. It can still be there as an image, but something's not penetrating so deep. And so, for example, there's many examples I could give, but so uh, some, some time ago was working with this. This movement happened, the opening, the receptivity, the surrender to, to the, the, the divine. Um, and uh, heard the bird song outside, a be- beautiful bird song. And uh, that bird song was felt as blessing. Felt with, with my whole soul uh, was was felt. Um, the birds were blessing. They were their their song was a blessing. Um, in the blessing was a kind of healing. So the bird song itself was um, felt in my body and through, through the listening, but also in the energy body, as if the bird song, the sound, the, mag, the, 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 the fragments of melody, um, was reweaving my energy body, restructuring. Uh, and, and it was all one, the body and the reweaving and the sound, heard, felt, the synesthesia was there. Um, through sound, in sound, the, the energy body was being re- rewoven. Um, very, very, very beautiful there. So there's a synesthesia between the sound and the body sense, with the sense of blessing, with the sense of the divine, with the sense of the, the humility, the, the surrender. And these are, as I said, it, the, these are sometimes very little, very subtle movements. And sometimes they're a big step, but sometimes they're just subtle movements. Something just, oh yeah, and, and something is allowed. So, you know, with um, some of you will be familiar with different tantric practices, Vajrayana practices, where you have a sort of um, prescribed deity. It's Tara, or it's this deity, or, or that deity. Uh, it's called a Yidam uh, in the tradition. And um, 
again, if you're familiar with this, but for those of you that are, you know, again, I, w- I would say, maybe the devotion to this deity, the surrender, um, the openness, the humility, are really vital and indispensable parts of that practice. Um, they, um, they might need to be first, you know, those things first. So in the Tibetan tradition, in the Tantric tradition, they talk about preliminaries and prerequisites. It's, it's working on the heart, and the heart's relationship with all this, and the heart's relationship with being on the path, and divinity, and all that. And then that allows an opening. So there's reason for all that stuff in the, in the Tibetan tradition. But this um, heart surrender, or devotion, or openness, humility, again, felt in the energy body brought alive as experience in the heart, in the energy body, and it, so it can unlock or bring, bring alive. It opens a door, if you like. Otherwise, these, these things are just exercises in visualization or concentration. So the heart and its attitude, and its posture, if you like, the posture of the heart in any moment is crucial to imaginal practice, absolutely crucial. And, um, you know, there's quite a lot to say about working with imaginal figures and building on um, what we did yesterday. But just a reminder, you know, the, the imaginal figure may, be, um, may feel like it, it, it has an ethereal body of light, or it may be very solid, it may be a human being, it may be, um, have a certain color, or it may be an animal, it may be, there's, there's a real range there. Um, it may be someone I know, maybe someone I don't know, maybe a historical figure, there's all kinds of possibilities. Maybe the features are clear of the image, maybe they're not. Maybe it's visual, maybe it's not. But the character, the personality, um, the qualities of the presence of the imaginal figure, that, that's what we want to have clear. So the visuals might not be clear, but it's the, it's the, the sense of this is a particular character. And I can feel, I somehow feel that character. So there's, um, you know, there's a place for, uh, I said, this, this, this stance of the heart. And some of it, at different times, might involve um, supplication, asking. So if, if this, this other is some kind of divine, there might, you know, one kind of relationship with that is asking. Supplic- that's how usually people think about prayer, which I'll, I'll speak about in a minute. This asking for something. In my humility, I'm asking for something. That, that you know, that's really uh, a, a, a part, let's say. And there can also be this receiving, receiving of the love, for instance. Or just harmonizing the being in gazing at the imaginal figure and being gazed at. There's a harmonizing of the qualities. We are absorbing, if you like, um, almost by osmosis, just by being in contact with this imaginal figure, we, we're absorbing the, the, uh, the, the, what it radiates. It's love or compassion or power or whatever it is. So there's receiving and there's also a kind of harmonizing. And then sometimes uh, there can be a kind of union. So one actually, uh, I think Maywa said yesterday, there can actually be a union. I, 
me and the imaginal figure become one. There's a communion there. Um, and me and this deity become one. Several people have already shared this kind of thing. Just a very natural part of the way these kind of um, practices can open up. And we don't need to make a hierarchy between all that, supplication, receiving, harmonizing, union. They're just different um, dimensions of experience that can open up. Sometimes that union or that movement towards union can be erotic, can be sexual. And that's completely... um, uh, within what we would expect for these kind of practices. And we don't usually include that in prayers. Actually, yes. Yes. It's there. It's, it's very uh, normal. I mean, it doesn't need to happen, but it's, it can be a very normal part of what, what happens here in, in, in working with these things. So I mentioned the word prayer. Um, and I think for a lot of people who may be well, maybe just for a lot of people, wherever they stand on religious or religions, um, they think of prayer as supplication, as asking. I'm asking God for a favor. Help me out here. Um, and, and I want to say that's really fine, you know, as, a, as one dimension of what prayer can be. Um, if, if that's part of it, you know, what I would just say, like so, so much of this is about delicate balance and sensitivity. It's like careful when... When one is in a supplicatory relationship, that that doesn't um, too much come out of or end up feeding actually a quite contracted sense of self, um, a, a smaller, harder sense of self that wants something and and is kind of you know um, pushing for that. There's a difference between that. So the actual supplication may actually contract and make hard the self sometimes. It doesn't have to. There's a slight difference in that um, between what's a humble opening, um, uh, opening out of the being to receive, um, to receive from something, someone that's bigger. There's, there's a subtle difference there, and, and it, it, it's, but always it's like noticing what the effect is. <coughs> Is it contracting more, or is it opening and softening more? You know, when we use words like prayer, it's like, that's such a big word with such a range. So yes, there is prayer as supplication. There's um, prayer as praise. Prayer as blessing. And even what those words mean, what what does blessing mean? We say, may you be peaceful, may you, this or that, and, and there's, there's that level of blessing which is beautiful. And there's also, a kind of, it's almost like the word itself has, has no end to it in what it can open to and what it can mean. To bless and, and to feel blessing. It's almost like the, the, the word itself d- dissolves or, or, or goes into realms where it dissolves. And it's still palpable and powerful blessing and and prayer as blessing so that the all these dimensions are open but all these things you know prayerfulness devotion surrender love compassion there's there's such a range of flavors and intensities that are available to us as human beings with all of that such a range so you know with compassion it can be very um, quivering in response very tearful we're really resonating with the suffering of whoever it is we're giving compassion to. It's one flavor of compassion. 
Other flavors of compassion are very kind of soothing and they're much more buoyant or bright or quite spacious. There's all these different flavors and they're all good. They're all available to us. And all these qualities, prayerfulness, compassion, they're always composites. They're mixtures. There's never one thing. So as practice grows, we can know and experience all these ranges and actually discern the differences and the qualities differently. We don't always need to insist on intensity of experience. Uh, Intensity is not always better or deeper, necessarily. But intensity of experience of emotion can be something that we're more and more able to accommodate. We have more and more capacity for intense, deep feelings. That grows. We can develop that slowly over time. So again, openness, uh, openness of mind here, trying to discern what's helpful. Um, let me say, let me say one, one more thing about all this involves the body. We've been emphasizing that right from the beginning. And you get a sense of how much the heart and the mind, the chitta, affect the body and how much the body affects the, the heart and the mind. So it's, it's two ways. Now some of you will notice, uh, or in the course of practice, whether it's today or on this retreat or, or another time, Sometimes you're sitting with the energy body, and, and especially when the energy body starts to feel quite nice or harmonized, um, when there's a bit more well-being, sometimes you get the sense that the energy body wants to move in certain ways, um, or adopt a certain posture, um, or actually that it already is doing that. I'm sitting here still, the physical body is sitting here still, and inside the energy body is dancing. And, or it's adopted a certain posture, or it's m- moving in a certain way, or it wants to move in a certain way. So this is different than restlessness. It's just fidgety, or just a bit bored. Something is actually quite harmonized, and the energy body is, is, is moving, or wanting to move. So this is something, if it, you don't need to make it happen, it's not better or worse, it's just something that can happen. If it happens, it's something you can feel into. What does that feel like, this movement or this impulse to move? Um, and sometimes we can actually deliberately, a- actively explore the movement. So let the body do what, what, it, what it has the impulse to do. Um, actually enact it. So there might be spontaneous um, movements, or um, usually they tend to be quite slow uh, with this, usually, but there's anything can happen, or it might look a bit like Tai Chi, or some kind of dancing, or something. Um, but actually it could be anything. Sometimes it's just in the hands. If you know this word mudra, it's, one of the meanings is hand posture. And uh, again, you c- it might happen spontaneously, um, or... Uh, you allow allow the body, the hands, to adopt a certain posture. Um, some people sit like this, and that's a very open posture. But there's all kinds of other things you can just feel into. Uh, you know, this is a mudra, this uh, anjali, prayer. And there's subtle differences. You know, 
actually, if I'm in, that feels different emotionally and energetically to, to the hands being at the heart center, to being at the head center, or even at the mouth, even just a little bit up and down, or f- you know, this with the hands forward f- feels different. It's very subtle how it affects the energy body and how it affects the heart. Um, but these are the sort of things, if you want to, you can let, let the body experiment with and feel. What is it to touch the earth, the, 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 the mudra of the hand touching the earth? And what's alive for that imaginally and in the soul, in the heart? You know, it's a famous um, Buddha posture. I can't quite see from here. Is he doing that? I can't, I can't see, but... Um, so, so there's there's the whole archetypal resonance of that, you know. Or what is it to bow on the earth and let the forehead touch the earth? <coughs> um, so, how does it feel? How does it feel to let the body do some of this stuff? And how does it feel to just keep the physical body still and allow the imaginal, energetic body to do it? Yeah, there's two different avenues there. Sometimes meditation feels stuck, and say, for instance, with this mudra, with a hand posture, it's, it's quite interesting. You know, sometimes just a little shift of the mudra of the hand posture, and something unstucks, and and uh, because the, the 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 chitta and the body are that connected, that sometimes just a shift of the body, and um, even the. the the hands into some different thing like that, and something unstucks. The emotional, the heart opens, the energy body opens, the perception opens, the possibilities open. Really quite subtle can be. So, you know, you don't need to get sort of obsessed with all this or whatever, but if it's something that feels like it's fruitful to explore, let yourself explore it a little bit. There's, there's quite, quite some richness here. Sometimes very subtle changes can actually be quite, um, uh, quite have a lot of effect. Okay, so practice-wise, if you want to, you can include this t- today. And so in the walking meditation, again, um, energy body, um, and sometimes, as Catherine was saying this morning, it's just about solidity and the contact, but energy body. And if you want, the walking meditation can start to include some of this more, um, uh, how, how does the energy body want to move? Maybe it's not walking, maybe I'm standing there and doing what looks like Tai Chi or some kind of dance thing, or I just want to adopt a posture, um, and I'm, I'm still. And again, it could be actual physical enactment that the body is doing, and it could be I am actually just look stock still, the physical body, but inside there's this movement going on, or this certain posture. So let yourself explore, if you want to, you can explore that, um, at times if you want Yeah. Now, everything affects everything else. So, like I said, the energy body, the heart, the emotions, the body, it's all, it's all uh, this, this mutually dependent web, beautiful web, that everything touches and shapeshifts everything else. When there's this energy body movement, either the, imp- the inner imaginal movement or the actual movement, Sometimes that in itself will open up, as I said, the perception. It will bring an image or it will open up a cosmopoesis or a shift in way of looking. And sometimes the other way around. 
you're working with an image and it seems like because of this working with the image or because of this cosmopoiesis, the body wants to adopt a certain posture or move or the hands or something like that. So as so, so often the causality is both ways. This causes that and that causes this. Um, but to no- so what that means for practice is to notice, as you, if you play with this stuff and as you do or as much as you do, can we notice um, the energy body, the emotion, the feeling and all that, but also the, what's happening in perception and the sense of self, the sense of the world, the way of looking, the sense of the body, of other, of, of environment. So last thing, you know, with, with all this, sometimes it's more helpful to enact things. So, if, for instance, prostrations or actual chanting, actual sounds, um, and it brings the being alive. It, it moves the energy and something comes alive and we get more sensitive. And sometimes the being wants not to do that. It's actually, it's the stock still and I'm just letting it, letting, the bowing is happening. No one can see it, but inside I'm bowing. And, and sometimes the being needs that kind of more subtle um, manifestation, and sometimes it needs the actual, no, actually bend the body and, and <laughs> do that prostration, chant, vocalize. So again, this is part of this complexity and discernment in all this. When, when does one bring me alive? And when, curiously, does one actually just shut me off and not bring the sensitivity alive? There's not, there's not a rule. It's not always one or the other. So, so this part of, the, part of the play of all this is to be sensitive to, to this. Do you, you get that? Let's have a, just a little bit of silence together. encourage just take what's useful if something just doesn't feel relevant right now leave it just leave it thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharma seed dot org slash donate